0: In 1969, California adopted what became known as a No-Fault Divorce Policy. This policy, now the law of the land in most of our country, uh, has created what many would call a crisis as it relates to marriage. 50%, around 50% of marriages, now end in divorce. It seems, these days, that the divorce is as carefully prepared for as the wedding reception. Rap artist Kanye West penned these words in 2005, and I think they capture the sentiment well. If you ain't no punk, holler, we want prenup. We want prenup. <laughs> it's something that you need to have, because when she leaves you, she's going to leave With half. Divorce is obtained easily and for any and every reason. We come to Matthew chapter 5 this morning in verses 31 and 32, and here we hear a rebuke to our culture and to ourselves upon the lips of Jesus. Jesus teaches us that casual divorce is no divorce. And that casual divorce actually produces adultery. His main point is clear. Marriage is forever. And I don't mean forever on into eternity. We know there's no marriage in heaven. I mean until death. Do us part. And that's your main idea this morning. A marriage is forever. The exhortation comes on the heels of that. I want you to honor marriage. Honor marriage. Stay married. Your outline is there before you. Let's pray and we'll begin our time together this morning. Father, we we ask for your kindness and for your gentleness this morning as we deal with a topic that has impacted most everyone in the room. We pray that as we read these words of Christ and inevitably some scars are opened anew, that you would patch us up. We pray that we would hear both the notes of grace and the call to holiness in Jesus' voice. Pray that you would remind all of us, those of us who have gone through divorce and remarriage, that your grace is sufficient. That Jesus' blood never fails to cleanse every kind of sin, even divorce. We pray that you would remind us that our identity, when we have come to Christ, is not primarily sinner anymore, but son of God. We thank you that by him we have been adopted into your family and made new. As we study these words this morning, we pray that indeed you would help us to conform our lives to them. Help us to hear and to obey the words of our King, Jesus, in whose name that we pray. Amen. Before we step into the text, let's get some context once more this morning. We are in Matthew's gospel. We've been walking through it over the past few weeks, maybe months now, I'm not sure. And what we have seen is that Matthew has laid out for us in the first four chapters Jesus' credentials as the long-awaited Messiah King. Matthew wants us to recognize, hey, the one who is to come and is going to crush the head of the serpent and deliver his people... Well, he's come. He's a son of David. He's going to bring the blessing of Abraham. He's going to bless all nations. He was born of a virgin, named Jesus by an angel because he will save his people from their sins. Matthew wants us to understand that Jesus is the king. And now in chapters 5 through 9, he wants to bring us into contact with the king's power by way of his words and his works. We see his authoritative and powerful works on display in chapters 8 and 9 as he goes about healing and ministering to people, demonstrating his power over death and disease and demons. And in chapters 5 through 7, where we find ourselves this morning, we see Jesus' authority on display in his words, in this famous sermon on the mount. And Jesus has really one big question that he's trying to answer in this sermon. And that question is this, who's in? Who gets into the kingdom of heaven? Who gets into the kingdom of God, Jesus's kingdom? Who inherits it? And he gives us two answers, really. First and foremost, he says, it's those who trust in the King. We see that in uh, verse 3 of chapter 5 when he's giving those beatitudes and opening this sermon. He says, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Who, Who gets into the kingdom of heaven? It's the person who comes to the Lord Jesus Christ with nothing to offer him. and says, I need you to obey God's law for me so that I might have its blessing rather than its curse. Because by by my life and by my own efforts, I've failed to honor you as king. I've rebelled against you. I've been a traitor and I deserve death. Lord, I need your grace. That's the kind of person who enters the kingdom of heaven. Jesus gives us uh, an illustration later on, he compares a publican and a Pharisee, and the Pharisee stands on a hill and he he prays, he says, you know, probably very eloquently, Lord, thank you that I am not like this tax collector. He's a real loser. And the tax collector, the publican, he beats his breast and won't raise his eyes to heaven. And he just says, Lord, have mercy on me, a sinner. And Jesus says, It's the tax collector who went down to his house, justified. That's what it means to be poor in spirit. To trust not in your own righteousness, your own works, your own efforts, but to trust in Jesus' righteousness. The second answer to the question, who inherits the kingdom of heaven, is given to us in verse 21 of chapter 7. You can turn there if you'd like. Jesus has got done explaining, uh, in large part, most of his sermon. He just has finished saying, a tree is known by its fruit. You know what kind of tree it is, by what kind of fruit grows on its branches. That's pretty straightforward. Figs on the leaf, or on the branches, it's a fig tree. Apples, it's an apple tree, so on and so forth. And then he says this in verse 21. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. What's Jesus saying? He's saying the one who enters the kingdom of heaven heaven, is not simply the one who acknowledges me with their lips and then disobeys my word. The one who enters the kingdom of heaven is the one who comes to me poor in spirit, acknowledges me as king with their lips and with their lives by obeying my word. Well, what Jesus is doing in the Sermon on the Mount, and you've heard me say this a few times now, probably sick of it, Jesus calls us in the Sermon on the Mount, he calls us to himself, to trust in him alone for our salvation, and he calls us to holiness. There is no such thing as a Christian who isn't pursuing holiness. There's no such thing as a Christian who isn't changed. Sure, uh, you may have repositioned your body at the end of a church service once upon a time. You may have prayed the sinner's prayer and then nothing in your life changed. Brother, sister, really I should say friend, you're not a Christian. When you encounter Jesus and you become a Christian, your life changes. When you really are poor in spirit, you really are receiving the grace of God... Well, you begin to grow spiritual fruit. A tree is known by its fruit. And Jesus says, not everyone who just says, I'm a Christian, is going to enter the kingdom of heaven. No, no, the one who enters is the one who hears and does my word. So so I don't want to get these two things confused. We are saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. We're the poor in spirit. We enter the kingdom. And if we are in the kingdom... We will live like kingdom citizens. We'll have kingdom values. And therefore, we will pursue holiness by pursuing obedience to Jesus' words here. Will we do it perfectly? Absolutely not. But by God's grace, even our imperfect attempts at obedience can be pleasing to God. All praise be to Him. Jesus has impressed upon us our inability to make ourselves right with God on the basis of our own righteousness, early on in the sermon, he says, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will in no way enter the kingdom. And as we have said, the scribes and Pharisees, we typically think of them as bad guys wearing black hats, but that wasn't the case in, the, in these days, in the day of Jesus. They were the good guys. Really, we should think of them as uh, the, the coolest, uh, the most religious of the religious. Uh, I've said they are the goats of religion, right? The scribes are to the law, as Michael Jordan is, to basketball. The Pharisees are to righteousness, as Tom Brady is, to football. They're the goats. And Jesus says, you know, if you're not better than them at religious stuff, well, you can't get into the kingdom of heaven. Sort of like saying uh, it's Sunday, and you're going out to play golf with Tiger Woods in his prime, and if you don't shoot better than him, you're not in, kid. This would have been shocking to the listeners. It would have aroused fear and caused a murmuring to go about through the crowd. Who then can get in? And Jesus continues to ruin their idea that by their own self-righteousness, that they could enter the kingdom of God, that they could earn God's blessing. He says, "I I know, maybe you think you've kept some of the law. Maybe you think you've done a good job at keeping the Ten Commandments. Maybe you think you've kept, if you haven't kept them all, maybe you've kept at least two, and you're thinking to yourself, murder? I haven't murdered anybody. I've got that. And I haven't committed adultery. I've got that one. And Jesus says, not so fast, my friend. He says, you've heard it said you shall not murder, but I'm telling you. Anybody who curses his brother or says, raka, you fool? Well, he's committed murder with the mouth. The person who's angry with his brother or sister in his heart, you are guilty of committing heart murder. So you, you think you haven't committed adultery? I say to you, everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. You haven't kept the law at all. Maybe it's letter, but you've missed its its heartbeat. Is those going, who then can be saved? And Jesus is, is calling them to himself and he's calling them to pursue holiness. We saw this last week. He says, if your eye causes you to sin, tear it out, throw it away. If your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off, throw it away. This is metaphor. Don't actually go the way of origin and castrate yourself. Remember, uh, he, he says, we want to deal radically and drastically with sin. It's that serious. And he says, lust actually qualifies morally as adultery. And here, on this Mother's Day, he picks up that theme of adultery again. That's the beauty of expository preaching. You just are where you are. He picks up adultery again and and says something that I I think shocks us. Look with me at verse 31 of Matthew chapter 5. It was also said, whoever divorces his wife, let him give her a certificate of divorce. But I say to you, everyone who divorces his wife, except on the ground of sexual immorality, makes her commit adultery. And whoever marries a divorced woman commits adultery. There's a lot there, but, but let's look at verse 31. first. It says, whoever, it's been said, whoever divorces his wife, let him give her a certificate of divorce. Jesus is picking up on a controversy that exists in the first century about what are the legitimate grounds for divorce. And, and there are three primary rabbinical schools of thought. The rabbi uh, Shammai said, You cannot divorce unless there is marital infidelity. Some kind of unchastity. Rabbi Hillel said you can divorce, well, really, if your wife does anything unpleasing. That includes uh, if you came home and she burnt your dinner, uh, this would be grounds for a legitimate divorce. Or if she wasn't a great housekeeper, grounds for legitimate divorce. A couple times this week, I looked at Chelsea and I said, you are lucky we are not of the school of Hillel. You might, might lose all of this. And she laughed. Uh, a third school is called the Rabbi Akib. I'm probably messing up his name. But he said that a man could divorce his wife even if he found, quote, one fairer than she. This would be a legitimate, legitimate grounds for divorce. You go, where, where are these guys getting this sort of idea and you can, you can see that they have this idea in, in Matthew chapter 19, verse 3. The Pharisees come up and they ask Jesus this question. Is it lawful to divorce one's wife for any cause? Right? So they're, they're stirring up this um, position on divorce once more. And, and it comes from one passage in Deuteronomy chapter 24. And one phrase, the phrase is, uh, if the man finds his wife, if he finds in his wife some indecency. And so the, these different positions that the rabbis had were based on how they interpreted that phrase, some indecency. What does it mean for her to be indecent, right? And Hillel says, well, it's indecent for her to burn my dinner. And, and Akib says, well, it's indecent for her to not be as attractive as another woman. And so these are, these are legitimate grounds for divorce. But we recognize when we set some indecency in her in its context in Deuteronomy, uh, that Moses isn't commanding divorce, And he's certainly not permitting it on such flippant grounds. Uh, Look with me at Deuteronomy chapter 24. We'll read the first four verses. Deuteronomy chapter 24. When a man takes a wife and marries her, if then she finds no favor in his eyes because he has found some indecency in her, and he writes her a certificate of divorce and puts it in her hand and sends her out of his home, and she departs out of his house, And if she goes and becomes another man's wife, and the latter man hates her and writes her a certificate of divorce and puts it in her hand and sends her out of his house, or if the latter man dies, who took her to be his wife, then her former husband, that's the original husband if you're trying to keep up here, then her former husband who sent her away may not take her again to be his wife after she has been defiled, for that is an abomination before the Lord. And you shall not bring sin upon the land that the Lord your God is giving you for an inheritance. What is is going on here? Moses is laying out some case law that is aimed at the protection of the wife and of women and children. There are many ways that you could take advantage of divorce. For example, uh, when you get married, you got a dowry. And so you could You get the certificate of divorce and you write her the certificate of divorce, which allows her to get remarried to somebody else. And then, let's say she gets married and the person dies, or he decides he he hates her and sends her away, and then you try to remarry her, there could be great financial gain in this. Because you would get, especially in the case of somebody that died, you would get all of their inheritance. And so uh, part of this law served to prevent husbands basically from pimping out their wives right? The allowance of a divorce certificate provides regulations and is a concession that's aimed at protecting an innocent victim. Uh, John Frame is helpful. He says, the conclusion of the passage says that when a woman is officially divorced from one man and marries another, she may not, after the second marriage ends, return to the first husband. This is the whole teaching of the passage. Explicitly, it neither encourages nor discourages divorce, but only recognizes its existence and regulates it in a single case. So you can see that Moses' instruction isn't aimed at allowing someone like Hillel to say years later, hey, you found an indecency in your wife, looks like you have grounds for divorce. Easy come, easy go. It's not what's going on at all. In fact, sort of the opposite's going on. Right? Moses is, is trying to protect women and children through this provision. He doesn't want a, a man to be able to flippantly dismiss his wife. He understands that the institution of marriage, in part, is aimed at the protection of and provision for women. And when divorce is entered into casually, flippantly, It turns what should be a garden for the flourishing of the family into a killing field. Moses does not intend to motivate people to casual divorce. I do wonder, you know, these are religious leaders, you wonder how they could have gotten it so wrong. Now, How did they arrive at such an odd interpretation. Some indecencies found in her, you know, well, oh, she burnt his dinner, he can get a divorce. How do you get there? And I think the answer in part has to be, you know, I, I say this often where your heart is, your argument will follow. That the, the sinfulness in the hearts of those who were interpreting this passage, well, they, they found an opportunity to cultivate that sin. And so they found arguments to, to match what they wanted to do anyway. You know what? You know It's not too different from, from our, our day, right? You can look at marriage and say, "Really, it's, it's not a binding covenant. It's not really about promises. It's, you know, marriage is more of a product. There's a worldly perception of marriage. It's more, more like a product, right? Uh, I buy in as long as I continue to get out of it what I want out of it. But as soon as it doesn't benefit me anymore, I'm out. Often that's how our logic towards marriage works, right? Uh, two people, right, they're gonna love each other and as long as they love one another and they're happy, well, then they can stay married. But if, if you get unhappy, well, you need to follow your heart. right? You need to follow your heart and find whoever's next. Get out of that marriage because your happiness is what your marriage is about. If you ain't no punk, all are we want prenup. It's funny, I, I think sometimes we look at the school of Hillel and we can even sort of laugh at Akib. if he, If he finds a woman that's more attractive, that's grounds for divorce. And yet yet we sort of arrive at the same place as them in how we actually approach divorce in our culture, don't we? Sort of treat it just as flippantly. Look at how the religious leaders misinterpreted this passage of Scripture and we want to sit back and tisk tisk. How could they? We would never use God's Word to justify our sin. Would we? Have we? Jesus, you know, he he goes into the tabernacle and he flips over tables and he chases people out with a whip. That means I can get as angry as I want with anybody. We would never use the Bible to justify sin. This approach to marriage espoused by the religious leaders, is untenable. It dishonors marriage, and it dishonors God. And Jesus tells us that casual divorce is no divorce in the eyes of God. Look with me again. It was also said, whoever divorces his wife, let him give her a certificate of divorce, but I say to you that everyone who divorces his wife, except on the ground of sexual immorality, makes her commit adultery. And whoever marries a divorced woman commits adultery. I really want you to hear the conditional clause in verse 32, so I'm going to paraphrase it so that you can. Jesus says, Every, I'm going to put it this way. If you divorce your wife, then you make her Commit adultery. If you marry a divorced woman, you commit adultery. Why does he say that? Why does he say makes her commit adultery? And the answer is in that culture, a woman's means were tied to her marriage. This is how you survive. And so there were two options. Uh, one could uh, go home to their parents in shame. Sort of see that with, uh, with Tamar in, in 1 Samuel 13. Remember, Amnon uh, looks at his sister. He thinks he loves her. He burns with a passion. He pretends to be sick. He has her cook him some food, and then he dismisses everyone from the house, asks her to feed him the food, and then he takes hold of her and rapes her, and then subsequently decides that he hates her and sends her away, and, and what does she do? Remember, she she tears her clothing, she puts ashes on her head, and she goes and she lives in her brother's house in desolation, where he provides for her. That's one option, but it wasn't the most frequent option. The other option would be to go and to be remarried. That's what the certificate of divorce enabled you to do. And so, in all likelihood, when these divorces, Jesus might put them in air quotes, occurred, the Next action that would happen would be this wife would go and be remarried, and Jesus is saying that divorce is no divorce. In God's eyes, you're still joined together. Sort of like when a couple gets married, there is an unbreakable bond that God creates between them. Jesus speaks of it, and we'll get here towards the end, but in Matthew 19, 6, he says, what therefore God has joined together, let no man separate. You know, just before that, he appeals to Genesis 2, which we read this morning. There's Adam in the garden. He's looking for a helper that's, that's fit for him. God creates the woman, naked man, sings the first love song to a naked woman, bone of my bone, flesh of my flesh. They're joined in a sexual union, and they're joining together in a sexual union creates a bond that the Bible says God is involved in in some way. What God has joined together, let no man separate. It's sort of like uh, the unbreakable vow in Harry Potter. for those of you who are unfamiliar with uh, the wizarding world or the muggles among you, it's not really that hard to follow here. Um, In in Harry Potter, you are able to swear yourself to what is called an unbreakable vow. An illustration here is really simple. Guess what happens if you break the unbreakable vow? You die. Likewise, in the scripture, when a, a husband and wife vow... They promise to love one another, to be bound together. God joins them together in their sexual union. The idea is that if you break this covenant, the result is death. Remember, if one commits adultery under the Old Testament law, the offense is a capital one. Death. Does you part? That helps us actually to make sense of the exception clause here. Jesus says, if anyone divorces his wife, except on the ground of sexual immorality. And so he does provide us with a legitimate grounds for divorce. The word here for sexual immorality, I don't do this often, but I think it's it's helpful here. Uh, The word here is porneia. Uh, It's porneia in Greek. And it refers to any and every kind of sexual activity that takes place outside of the covenant of marriage. And so it includes fornication, adultery, polygamy, incest, bestiality, and on down the line. This, Jesus says, there's a reason you can hear the word porn in porneia, Uh, this, Jesus says, is a legitimate grounds for divorce. Scripture says, Uh, also provides, I think at this point, since we're talking the exception clause here, uh, one other, I'm gonna be brief, one other legitimate grounds for divorce, and it gives it to us in in 1 Corinthians 7, uh, where Paul says abandonment is actually a legitimate grounds for divorce. And so uh, when the criteria, or if the criteria of porneia and of abandonment is met, then the Bible allows for legitimate divorce and legitimate remarriage. And that second one I should mention Some expand abandonment to include things like physical abuse, Um, but that's a conversation for another time. My point here is to say there is such a thing as biblical divorce when those two criteria are met. However, while the Bible does permit divorce in these cases, it never requires divorce. Divorce is sometimes permitted but never required. And in fact, oftentimes these situations, even though uh, poor may have taken place and and divorce can be legitimate, it's usually an opportunity for couples to display the gospel in their relationship in a really unique way. I heard a a story uh, somewhere along the way of a wife who had committed adultery and not ever told her husband about it and continued to live with him for years and years. And then one day, uh, she, she, couldn't, she couldn't take the guilt, and so she, she confessed to him that, that she had committed adultery, and he responded, he, he, immediately he left the house and was gone for a couple hours, and so uh, she began to, to pack her things and, and realize that um, their union was, was over because of what she had done in the past. But after a couple hours, the, to her surprise, her husband came home, and he had a, a bag a pink bag with all the you know the stuffing in it that people love to put in there just to keep you from getting to whatever's inside. And he reached his hand into the bag and he, he pulled out a white nightgown and he asked her to put it on. And she did. And he said, this is how I choose to see you. I choose to see you as Christ sees those who belong to him. Pure and sinless, I committed to love you, and I certainly have grounds for divorce here, but I, I forgive you, and I'm going to keep my vow to you. Friends, marriage images the gospel. This is how Christ has loved us. Our posture towards marriage shouldn't be like, I'm sitting back and waiting to look for these loopholes, you know, the, the marital like emergency escape. Oh, if my they can abandon me, or oh, if they'll commit sexual immorality, then I can get out of my marriage. That's not to be our posture. Our posture is to be, how can I love my spouse like Christ loves the church? How can I submit to and love my spouse like the church submits to and loves the Lord Jesus Christ? Now, if you are here, as an aside, and you have been through divorce or remarriage, maybe, maybe you've been through an unbiblical divorce and gotten remarried, and you're sitting there going, well, I guess I'm an adulterer. You know How do, how do, I, how do I repent of this? Well, the answer is not to get another divorce, okay? <laughs> right? The answer for divorce is not divorce. The answer for sin is not another sin. But what you need to do is you just confess, Lord, I was wrong here in the past forgive me. Enjoy his forgiveness, and then love your spouse in your current marriage faithfully. You need to be reminded that there are no uh, scarlet letter sins. Jesus forgives them all. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive them and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. As far as the east is from the west, so far does he remove our transgressions from us. Those who come to Christ in repentant faith have their filthy garments stained with sin removed, and they are given a white garment, white as a bride's dress on her wedding day, Jesus shed his blood so that all the sins of all who come to him can be forgiven. So that we can have peace with God and with one another. He rose from the dead so that we can be free from death and walk in the newness of life. At the end of that digression, Jesus speaks vehemently against casual divorce But we do need to consider what is his main point here, even though it is implicit, which is this, a marriage is forever. It's sort of like, uh, anybody remember the 90s De Beers commercials? There'd be these two shadows, like a man and a woman, and they'd be on the beach, and there'd be really cheesy, romantic music playing, and then eventually uh, there would be a ring, a diamond ring, and it would slip onto that shadowy figure, and they would embrace kiss, and the words would come up and say, a diamond is forever. You remember this? This is what Jesus is saying. He's saying, a marriage is forever. He addresses this more explicitly in Matthew chapter 19. Look with me at verse 3. And the Pharisees came up to him and tested him by asking, is it lawful to divorce one's wife for any cause? And Jesus answered, Have you not read that he who created them from the beginning made them male and female and said, therefore, a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife and the two shall become one flesh. Therefore, they are no longer two, but one flesh. What God has joined together, let not man separate. And they said to him, why then did Moses command, see, See, they've got Moses wrong here. Moses didn't command. We went to Deuteronomy 24. Why then did Moses command one to give a certificate of divorce and to send her away? And Jesus said to them, Because of your hardness of heart, Moses allowed you to divorce your wives, but from the beginning it was not so. And I say to you, Whoever divorces his wife except for Porneia and marries another commits adultery. And the disciples said to him, if this is the case of a man with his wife, it is better not to marry. And Jesus said to them, Not everyone can receive this saying, but only those to whom it is given. For there are eunuchs who have been so from birth, and there are eunuchs who have been made eunuchs by men, and there are eunuchs who have made themselves eunuchs for the sake of the kingdom of heaven. Let the one who is able to receive this receive it. And so Jesus is... Uh, giving a rejoinder to the Pharisees. He's saying, you want to know what the Bible's teaching about divorce is, you need to go back not to Moses where he is making uh, permissions for divorce. You need to go back to the very beginning, to creation before sin entered the world, and there you will find God's design for marriage. Uh, One biological woman, one biological man joined together, uh, their their commitment to one another sealed with a sign of the covenant their sexual union joined by God and inseparable this is Jesus position on marriage that it's designed to be forever and the disciples hear it and they say if that's the case maybe we shouldn't even get married we kind of expect Jesus to Jesus to ratchet down his language with that but instead he doubles down on it and he says you're absolutely right If you can't get married and stay married, then don't get married at all. Be like eunuchs. And so Jesus is setting out for us, God's design for marriage, but he's also giving us the only other option. If we are to be Christians and we are to be faithful to the Bible, the only other viable option for us if we are to not be married in regards to our sexuality is celibacy. Sometimes people say, I know the Bible condemns homosexuality over and over and over again. I know what Paul says, but Jesus never speaks about it. Yes, he does. Right here in Matthew chapter 19. He believes the Genesis account. And he rules out of bounds any other kind of sexual activity. Douglas Wilson's helpful here. Some facts are obvious from creation, from its ordinance of marriage because God has created Adam and Eve, homosexuality is excluded. Because Adam and Eve are one pair, polygamy is excluded. Because Adam could find no helper for himself among the animals, bestiality is excluded. And because God created just one woman for Adam, the pattern of monogamy is clearly set on display for us. What makes Eve a helper fit for Adam? The clues are anatomical. They fit together into one. Spiritual reality is portrayed in a physical union as God joins them together. In the act of sex, two people become one where they are most different. C.S. Lewis says this way, when Jesus said that two would become one flesh, He was not expressing a sediment, but stating a fact. Just as one is stating a fact when one says that a lock and key are one mechanism or that a violin and a bow are one musical instrument. The inventor of the human machine was telling us its two halves, the male and the female, were made to be combined together in pairs, not simply on the sexual level, but totally combined. God's intent in marriage is made obvious in his joining together of Adam and Eve. Marriage is forever because God designed it to be, and marriage is forever because it pictures the gospel. We've alluded to this already, but look at what Paul says explicitly in Ephesians chapter 5 and verse 31. For this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife. The two will become one flesh. This mystery is profound, but I am talking about Christ and the church. When Paul says mystery, he's not talking about an Agatha Christie novel. He's talking about mystery, something that was once hidden but is now revealed. And what he's revealing to us is that marriage has been and always was about picturing the relationship between Jesus Christ and the church. That marriage shows us how they are brought together united in love forever. Just as flowers stand in as a symbol for love, signatures for promises, or fireworks for celebrations, marriage is all about God and his promises to us. Brothers and sisters, singles and marrieds, marriage is about helping you see Jesus. When you look at a couple who's been married for 50 or 60 years, it is to remind you of God's commitment to you. The steadfast love of the Lord endures forever. When you sin against your spouse over and over again, and they forgive you over and over again, it is to remind you of the forgiveness you have in Christ and his total commitment to you. I'd love to have the opportunity to see this. Uh, When John Rhodes, he's moved uh, and his wife Phyllis Rhodes, uh, before she passed years ago now, we were celebrating her birthday, and uh, dementia had claimed much of her mind. She, she would only be able to be lucid for a, a minute or two, and then she would she would call out in confusion. John would see her every day. I remember sitting there, and, and numerous times she would go, "John, John," he'd say, "I'm I'm here, Phyllis," and then she would say. John, do you love me? he would remind her and say, I love you. I've always loved my Phyllis. A few minutes again. John, do you love me? Yes, I've always loved my Phyllis. I thought, this is is the cry of the human heart. God, do you love me? Jesus takes us by the hand and says, Yes, I love you, my precious child. Never will I leave you, never will I forsake you. I'm committed to you. I loved you enough to go to the cross for you and to die for your sins. I rose from the dead so that you too will rise from the dead so that you can be together with me and the rest of my people forever and ever without end. Amen. Your marriage has cosmic ramifications, friends. It teaches people about what God is like. We'll close with this. Your marriage is worth fighting for. There's a couple named Cindy and Chip who were in the news years ago. They'd been married 10 years but decided that they had grown apart and they would seek a divorce. Cindy moved out and Chip moved on, began dating another woman. After some time passed, uh, Chip found himself in the hospital with kidney failure. And would you know it, Cindy showed up. And she was a match. And she offered to give him a kidney, no strings attached. His soon-to-be ex-wife said, quote, He's still my husband, and there's no way I could walk around with two kidneys while he had none. And so the transplant took place. And then as they lay in the hospital, a funny thing happened. They remembered their vows. Remembered they loved each other. Chip broke off his relationship. Cindy moved back in. And at the time I had heard the story, they had been married 17 years. Chip said, quote, Why would I want to date someone else when I have a woman who gave part of herself so that I could keep on living? How hard should you work to fight for your marriage? You should be willing to give up a kidney. In fact, husbands, you are called to give up your very life. As Christ loved us and gave himself for us. This is the meaning of marriage. A marriage is forever. Oh, friends, let us honor it. Let us encourage one another to honor it. Let's pray for marriages. Let's honor God with the way that we interact with members of the opposite sex if we are single and the way we interact as married couples. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the gospel. Thank you that your word calls us to you to trust in Christ as our king and that it demands we obey him as his servants. We thank you that By your grace alone, we who were once dead in sin, because of your love, have been made alive together in Christ Jesus our Lord. Pray that you would help us, who have been born again, to walk in the newness of life. Pray that if there are non-Christians among us, that they would see the beauty of the gospel. That you would compel them to turn away from their sin, to give up ruling their own lives, to come to Christ and to serve him as their king. Lord, we thank you that Jesus is a good and mighty king, that he's good at ruling over our lives. We pray that you would help us to love him well by hearing and submitting to his voice. You are so good, God. We pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.